This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Back in April, the Northern Territory Government formally lifted its moratorium on fracking, effectively opening up 51% of the Territory to the unconventional gas industry. In response, a coalition of environmentalists, traditional owners and farmers have campaigned in opposition to the practice, which would result in dramatically higher emissions than those produced from the proposed Adani mine. And while familiar debates play out around the ability for emissions-intensive industries to provide much-needed jobs in regional Australia, a new proposal for from Beyond Zero Emissions is presenting as a viable alternative. Their new report, a 10 gigawatt vision for the NT, outlines a vision for a massive renewable energy industry in the Territory, one that would drastically reduce emissions while also providing jobs in regional areas. Eitan Lenko is chair at Beyond Zero Emissions and he joins me today on the line. How are you going, Eitan? I'm here, sorry. Fantastic. No, who knows? <laughs> um, but we are talking about your new report from Beyond Zero Emissions, a 10 gigawatt vision for the NT. But before we get there, I wonder if you can take us through the state of play up in the Northern Territory at the moment. I mean, where are we at with the unconventional gas exploration up there in the wake of the lifting of the moratorium back in April? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the moratorium, like I say, was lifted April last year and the government kind of got into gear... Um, trying to implement the 130-something recommendations uh, that were listed as prerequisites to, to beginning fracking um, in, the, in the government inquiry into, in, into fracking. Um, and so obviously that's taken up a huge amount of government um, focus and time. You know, they're quite complicated, a lot of the recommendations, and have just, just really been quite all-consuming for the government. And meanwhile, there's been a lot of... Um, you know, I guess spruiking of the benefits of of, um, of fracking to the economy up here. You know, from various members of the government. Obviously, we've got members of the federal government, like um, at Canavan, that have been talking about what a boon fracking would be to the to the Northern Territory economy. And then at the same time, you've got the um, you know a, a sort of a big coalition of environmental groups that have been out there talking about the dangers of fracking. So you've got um, you know Seed Mob, Lock the Gate, um, the Environment Centre, NT. Um, the Australia Institute, a, a big kind of uh, you know coalition of groups talking about really <clears throat> the um, the huge amount of emissions that fracking would release. You know, in the government report, based on quite conservative assumptions, um, they said that fracking the beetlebation would increase Australia's total emissions, so all of Australia's emissions by mm. by six point six percent, which is obviously massive, and um, you know not compatible with where we're trying to go as a country in terms of that, you know the Paris Climate Agreement. So there's been a lot of talk. There hasn't been pretty very much action yet. Um, you know, people here are starting to be, you know, where at the beginning they were looking at this as a, as a potential um, saviour of the economy. That's what the government was telling them. But, you know, there's still nothing has happened. The economy here is, is tanking. The budget is in a really bad situation. And people are really looking for something that's, that's going to improve the economic situation up here. And, and, you know, they don't particularly like the sound of um of fracking and you know the, all the environmental implications that it has but they're, they're not really hearing many other opportunities for the economy here either and, yeah. they're, and they're also getting frustrated that fracking doesn't seem to be doing anything for the economy either yeah it's an interesting point because as we saw with the the federal election earlier this year the kind of false dichotomy i guess was presented as you know jobs versus action on climate change and there's been a lot of questioning of you know campaigning around uh you know against the adani mine and that sort of thing and whether a viable alternative was really adequately sold to people who you know may be 
concerned about, about jobs in particular regional areas. That scientific inquiry that you mentioned did note that there was significant oppos- uh, community opposition to fracking, but what's the sense up there from people on the ground? I mean, do they, they see an alternative in renewable en- energy? Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point. Like, so I was living up in the Northern Territory last year in Darwin and, um, you know, when the moratorium was lifted and not not being a huge fan of fracking, being concerned about climate change, I was obviously really against that. And so, you know, I started getting involved and and, and understanding what was happening in terms of the anti-fracking campaign. But at the same time, you know, my kids were going to school here. I was meeting other parents at school and talking to them about the situation. And while none of them really liked the idea of fracking, they were all really worried about the economy and, and the question was well you know the government is telling us that's where that's where jobs are going to come from so i guess we don't really have a have a choice so yeah i think i think that's right and, and it, it occurred to me that when people then are campaigning against something they really need to put up the positive alternative so you can't just say we don't want fracking you know because a lot of people just hear that as saying we don't want that economic you know opportunity we don't want those jobs um so you have to put up an opportunity of, of what the um, what the alternative is and where you're proposing those jobs are going to come from because otherwise all people hear is that you don't want us to have jobs. And that really um, is kind of the sweet spot for a group like Beyond Zero Emissions, which is all about the solutions. It's about um, you know getting engineers and scientists and technical people together to work out what can be done and also modelling you know what the economic impact and, and what the cost of the investment in that sort of direction wants to be. So that's where the the genesis of this report came from. Yeah, and I want to get to that in in just a moment, but can we talk a little bit about the the Beetaloo Basin? This is an area that's of concern to a lot of people, which, as I understand, is kind of, you know, a significant area that that would be fracked under the the current um, projections if we continue on the course we're currently on. I mean, that's an area south of Darwin, located, I think, between Mataranka to the north and Elliot to the south. What kind of environment is that and what could be the potential impact if, if fracking goes ahead in that sort of area yeah i mean so if we look at the the, the government inquiry like, like i said fracking that area would would increase australia's total emissions by 6.6 percent if we think about it another way depending on the assumptions that you make it's like four to eight of the original bigger Adani mines in terms of its of its carbon impact so it's really it's really a carbon bomb plus you know the, the you know i think one of the one of the universal things with with fracking is that people that actually live near where that activity is meant to occur, uh, almost unanimously opposed. Nobody wants that that environmental impact around them. Obviously, it's an area that's got um, issues with water, and it takes a huge amount of water to um, to to perform fracking. It's you know an environmentally really um, old area that's that's you know been in quite a stable state for a very long time. So when you're talking about you know putting chemicals, injecting chemicals and things like that into the ground. Um, nobody's really a big fan of that. And obviously, it's, it's an area that has an Indigenous community um, who also, you know, for lots of different reasons and cultural reasons, are, are really opposed to it. So it's not a, a popular thing. And now we're starting actually to see pastoralists who are in that area. You know, just last week, a, a huge pastoralist, you know, billion-dollar, uh, you know, person that, that has billions of dollars and, and, you know, a lot of wealth behind them. Um, has come out and sued the government for their um, plans to, to you know, to, to including his pastoral land 
um, within that fracking licence. So there's a lot of um, local opposition. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, traditional owners there and, and Indigenous communities who, who live around the, the lands of the Beetaloo Basin, of course. And we've spoken previously on the show to Eleanor Dixon from Elliot, who was concerned about the, the lack of consultation around um, exploratory drilling and so on. Uh, I think last year we spoke to her about that. In what ways are they kind of engaged, I guess, in the campaign against fracking in the territory? Because it seems to me, looking from afar, that there's kind of an interesting alliance between traditional owners, environmentalists and farmers as well, who have, I guess, different but overlapping reasons for not wanting this to go ahead. Yeah, that's right. I think it's quite interesting in in all areas around Australia where the war uh, against fracking has has occurred, so in Queensland as well, it it throws up quite interesting um, alliances. So, yeah, I mean, Seedmob have obviously been, been leading the way, um, doing a lot of consultation themselves out in, in remote communities and, and um, getting people on board and educating people because one of the issues has been the, um, the information that communities have received from the gas companies, um, you know, what's known as free, prior and informed consent. So gas companies, a lot of people, you know, it's a, kind of a typical situation where um, information was given in, in English, which is, you know, not a lot of people's first language languages out language out there and, and whether the actual quality of the information that was given and the accuracy of the information was correct. So there's kind of questions around that. Um, and so groups like Seedmob are really out there kind of giving people the real information and educating people and then actually giving them things to do as well in terms of the productive ways they can actually oppose these activities. We're speaking with Eitan Lenko, chair at Beyond Zero Emissions, all about their new report, a 10 gigawatt vision for the Northern Territory, which was recently launched up there at Parliament House, I think a couple of weeks ago, Eitan, um, if, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, I think it's really positive that you have this alternative vision for, for job creation and the renewable sector up there. Tell us about this vision and, and what underpins it for the Northern Territory. Yeah, so like I said, I mean, it's really... Really, a big part of it is to have an economic vision, alternative economic vision for the Northern Territory. We don't accept that fracking is literally the only way that you could do anything with the economy in the Northern Territory. And that's, you know, if, you, if you've been hearing what the government has been saying, you know, that's the impression that you get. So we, we basically took a look at the Northern Territory and we said, you know, what, what, are, what are, there's two kind of key factors here that should be able to drive an economy. One, that, you know, we know that renewables and particularly solar are, are the cheapest way to um, generate electricity at the moment. And two, the Northern Territory has the world's best solar resource. So surely just with those two simple facts, we should be able to put together an alternative view of what the economy is capable of up here. Um, So it was interesting. We we, we fundraised, you know, BZD's independently funded. We don't don't get any government funding and and there are enough people interested in taking that kind of a view of the economy here that we managed to, to raise enough money to put this report together. And we had our researchers looking at it. And, and I think, fair to say, we're really excited by, um, by what we found in that, you know, there's tons of, of opportunities um, across all different parts of the Northern Territory economy that renewables could really make a big difference and stimulate a lot more jobs uh, than, than are being put forward for fracking. So, you know, in the, in the um, fracking inquiry, I think somewhere between two and 500 jobs that they estimate um, would come out of that industry. Whereas um, this plan has shown that, you know, at a, at a conservative view, there's 8,000 jobs that, that really embracing renewables could bring to the Northern Territory economy. And those jobs really are created through a number of different opportunities. Um, there's, you can really break those into a 
couple of different categories. There's the, the export opportunities, the renewable energy export opportunities, and um, I guess the internal to the Northern Territory opportunities. Because um, 10 gigawatts yeah, is actually quite a lot, isn't it? Because I think the, the current capacity of the Northern Territory in terms of energy generation is around about one gigawatt. Is, is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. I guess it depends which what, what, what frame you look at it from. Definitely, if you look at it from the current capacity of the Northern Territory, we're talking about 10 times mm. the amount of electricity generation. But if you look at, at, at 10 gigawatts on its own, it's not actually particularly a large amount of electricity. I mean, you know, there's, there's individual projects starting in Australia that are four gigawatt, multiple, multiple one gigawatt projects. So, you know, over a period of 10 years, to build 10 gigawatts these days of renewables isn't, isn't a particularly um, uh, outrageous or outlandish goal. And this, um, I mean, it, it sounds like a really strong business case for, for really kick-starting a renewable energy sector up there, but currently, uh, as I understand, only around 4% of energy generation in the Northern Territory comes from renewable sources. Why is that figure so low? Well, there's, there's a number of reasons. Um, there hasn't been, you know, any particular incentive or government focus. The, uh, the, if you're looking at just specifically the grid, of Darwin, that, that one gigawatt area that, we're, that we were talking about, that's completely fully supplied by uh, Power and Water, which is a government-owned utility, and they have a take-or-pay agreement, which means that whether they use it or not, they have to pay for the gas that they're getting. So there isn't really a huge amount of incentive for them to put renewables into the grid. And we were aware of all, all of those issues, and that's why this plan, the 10-gigawatt plan, really focuses mainly outside of the current, of the current grid so if you look at opportunities like renewable hydrogen, which, which is a big opportunity here because they've already got existing relationships with Japan and South Korea who are saying that they want their economies to run off renewable hydrogen, then all, all the solar that you would build to, to generate that hydrogen would be completely off the grid and doesn't need to deal with any of the politics or issues that, um, that the Darwin Grid currently has. Similarly with, um, with mining here, like so we're looking at... Um, Electrified minerals processing is a, as a big opportunity at the moment in the Northern Territory. Uh, you know, there's a lot of mining activity, and, and what happens is those raw materials are just dug up and sent off overseas in their raw state, and they're processed overseas. So, if we look at a, a, a mineral like manganese, at the moment the Northern Territory exports 1.6 billion dollars every year of manganese, but then that that manganese gets processed overseas, and the value of that processed manganese is five billion dollars. Mm. So we're saying with the world's cheapest electricity, which they have the potential to have here, we could be processing that manganese locally in an electrified uh, processing plant. And, you know, that would provide jobs. And, for uh, you know, these mines are distributed around the Northern Territory, so you could have jobs distributed around the Northern Territory. But then also the, the value of the export product would be much higher and that would bring in extra revenue into the Northern Territory as well. So it's a good example of how thinking outside the grid um, opens new opportunities. It's not just about switching out the electrons to power the lights in people's homes. Yeah, and I mean, how how has that been taken by politicians up in Darwin? I mean, this was launched uh, a couple of weeks ago. Is this changing the conversation up there and do you think it would, uh, you know, lead to a change in approach from the, the current government? Yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist by nature, so I was expecting a, a good response, but even I was really surprised um, <laughs> at, the re at the response we received. So, yeah, we, we launched the report a couple of weeks ago, and we had really great attendance at, at that launch. So we had a number of... It was, it was um, hosted by the Minister for Renewables up here, Dale Wakefield, and we had a number of other ministers attend. 
uh, and we followed the launch with a business roundtable. So we brought a company called Sun Cable, which is looking to uh, set up a project in Northern Territory to directly export electricity to Singapore, which is one of the one of the opportunities we look at in the report. Uh, and we also brought in Mike Cannon Brooks's head of his investment arm, Grok Ventures, Jeremy Kwong Law, who um, you know, and they're, they're considering investing in that project. And, you know, we had a number of other business people as well that, that represented um, capital and the renewables industry. And that business roundtable, you know, and there's also government there as well. And that, that was a fantastic event because government were there saying, OK, we, we see there's opportunities. What do you want from us? What money do we need to put in? Mm. You know, everyone, everyone asked for, for a handout for their kind of projects. And the message from the industry was, you know what, we, we actually we don't need any money from government. These, these business cases stack up. They're economic now. Renewables are cheap enough to enable a lot of these projects now. Uh, all we want to see from you is a strategy and some focus around renewables. Like, you know, there's no one at the moment, there's, you know, a gas task force, and there's all these people set up to promote the gas industry in the Northern Territory, but there isn't that same amount of effort and organisation around encouraging renewable opportunities. So they're saying, we just need to see that from you. We need to see that you're serious about this, and the rules aren't going to change underneath us in a, in a few years' time, and that you're supporting us in actually coming here and, um, and setting up our projects. And that was like, it was like a light switch turned on for government. So there's just been a huge amount of, uh, I guess, change, I feel, in the last couple of weeks, years, as government kind of reorients it, itself around this news, and there's talks of restructuring and reorganisation. It also helped that, um, you know, the, the main newspaper up here, the NT News, which is a, which is a News Corp newspaper, not normally known for, um, for being particularly friendly towards renewables, and definitely it was, it was very pro-fracking. So it had a huge front cover talking about the Northern Territory's $20 billion uh, solar opportunity on Saturday, and it followed that with more coverage on the front page on Sunday, and another round of articles on Monday. But so it even it pushed, we, pushed the crocodile off the front page, did it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although on the second day, it did talk about the, the chances of our croc attacks going up as well um, <laughs> in a separate article. But yeah, so you know, probably the most positive coverage of uh, of renewables that a news call paper has ever has ever given, and I think that that as well kind of shows a bit of a shift that, you know, people here, no matter what side of the, um, of the political divide you might be on, an opportunity is an opportunity and, and the economy in here is, is in a bad enough state that people can recognise a real opportunity versus something that's years away, if ever, going to happen. Um, and, they're, and they're kind of keen to jump on it. So mm. it just kind of needed to be put out in front of them, I suppose, and had the right, have the right messengers in terms of BZE, an engineering organisation, and also having representatives from business and industry here saying, we've got real money and we're real on the t- really here on the table. And meeting with the Chief Minister, they're saying, this is real. We just uh, help us just get this going. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned that there's kind of uh, infrastructure set up, uh, I guess, up there in terms of um, promoting the, the, the gas industry or, or gas task force, I think is what, is what you termed it. Um, and we know that the gas industry has been very active up there in the past. And when there is the proposal for, you know, quite dramatic change in this way, those who might not be beneficiaries can resist it quite strongly. And we've seen that with the, the fossil fuel lobby, you know, in, in Australia's recent history very strongly. What type yeah. of response have you had, if any, from the gas industry? And, and and do you expect resistance from them to this sort of change? Uh, I think we, I, I do expect some kind of resistance. I expect it'll be more behind the scenes than overt because, you know, renewables are extremely popular everywhere. And, and an idea like this I mean, if you think about it from, I guess, the, the, the perception of, of government, once, once they kind of understand an opportunity like this, it's like, 
getting the gas industry going here, I mean, it's not like Queensland where there's an existing coal industry. This is something new. There, mm. there, uh, there are no gas workers. There, there is no vested interest here at the moment because there isn't a gas industry right now in terms of, um, in terms of fracking. So getting something like this going against social licence, you've got community um, unhappiness with it, you've got an extremely dodgy economic basis to it. It's, I mean, it's really expensive to, to do this stuff, and it's, it's a question whether there'll ever be a market for such expensive gas in the first place. So, you know, and you, we saw at the federal election, federal labour were looking to put to, to build pipelines to enable this at a cost of $1.5 billion. So obviously there's, there's a huge amount of public subsidy required to get this to get this gas out of the of the ground and, and where you know the, the gas is demand is on the east coast so it just feels like a big effort to to really try to get this moving that that you know against <laughs> what what you know against the reality of, of of economics versus an opportunity like this where you have business coming here saying we have the money these projects can be up and running pretty quickly it doesn't take long to build a big solar farm you can do it in a year so you know government's like wow there's you know and and plus the, the public loves it as well and you've got front pages of the newspaper you've got everyone talking about it you've got the chief minister tweeting about it as, as a potential way forward so it just feels like there's a lot of momentum when you when you take an economic approach uh, that's based on renewables there's no resistance you can make it happen and, and the people are on board and it's very popular versus yeah. going down the gas pipeline which is just like Problem after problem. Now there's legal threats. Now there's, you know, it, it, it just seems a much harder direction. So I think that's the advantage that we have in, in general going forward in the future. Well, no, that whole, people actually want to go in this way. Yeah, and a whole bunch of strict, very strict requirements that need to be met, even to meet the kind of you know minimum safety standards of fracking up in the territory as well, which I imagine is a you know is a very really significant thing for gas companies to navigate. We're just about out of time, Aitan, but um, I understand you have some other similar reports in the works for, for regions around Australia as well because I think it's really important to present these positive alternatives to emissions-intensive industries. Where are you going to be looking to next? Yeah, I mean, it's what you said. I think it's really... I think the lesson of the federal election is that we can't just be protesting things without putting up a positive alternative, and that's really what BZE is great at. And, you know, we did it in the past with Port Augusta, and that, that helped Port Augusta transition to be the renewable energy hub that it is today. We're doing it now in the Northern Territory. Our next few reports, uh, we're going to be looking at Collie out in Western Australia, which is a coal, uh, a place that has a lot of coal infrastructure. Um, and then we're going to be looking at the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And they're both, so they're both regions that really need a good uh, a, a alternative proposition for their economy because we know that those coal-based industries are going to be going away. We know there's a lot of economic insecurity. And I think having a positive view is going to make any campaigns that are run out there a lot easier because, you know, you need to bring people on board with you and they need to understand where their jobs and where the economy of the future is going to come from. And I think we, we all know that renewables is the answer for that, but it's just thinking outside the box and showing not just literally we need to plant a few solar panels, but what are all the other opportunities that renewables um, can provide. So I encourage people to have a look at the report and to support BZE because, you know, we are a, a you know, completely donation-based, membership-based um, organisation. So, yeah. Yeah. Check out our website, bze.org.au. Absolutely, and we'll keep an eye on your future work as well and hope to have you back on Triple R sometime soon. 
Thanks, Dylan. It was great to talk. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. When we hear of the Pacific Islands in Australia, it tends to be in relation to issues around disaster relief, foreign aid, or perhaps most prominently, the offshore imprisonment of asylum seekers. And while there's a steady stream of holidaymakers who regularly flock to tourist hotspots such as Fiji and Vanuatu, our knowledge and engagement with the region, its cultures and its people remains incredibly limited. Tom Bamforth is an Australian who has got to know some of these places more than many. Through his role as an aid worker, he has since 2008 spent time in 11 of the region's 12 independent states and three of its dependent territories. His recollection from his time in the region have now been compiled into a book entitled The Rising Tide Among the Islands and Atolls of the Pacific Ocean. And to talk all about it, Tom joins me today in the studio. How are you going? Good. Thanks, Dylan. Great to be here. Thanks for coming in. And this book is essentially a travelogue of your time spent in the Pacific Islands. It's more experiential and and free-flowing than it is kind of an in-depth examination of aid programs or Australia's role in the region. How important was it to you to present your perspectives more as an independent writer or journalist as opposed to someone acting through a particular aid program or, or agenda? Yeah, I think that was very important to me. I think I, mean, I started off in the Pacific um, with an aid program, um, and I think that was my introduction. Really, it was actually kind of, in a sense, I mean, through the cracks of the of the aid program that I, be- I began to realise that there was a, 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 a series of bigger interests and a bigger world that were out there. I think you know, often when you're working in these aid programs, I mean, they they tend to talk about the world in a, in a certain way, as all institutions do. They look at the world in a certain way. And I went to Tuvalu. Um, to pursue this this program, um, and um, and there was a, a problem with the program, and, and um, you know reports weren't coming in, this sort of thing. And when I got there, I found that one of the reasons for this was that they had a, a centenary of an island choir, and this struck me as a as a sort of weird reason for not pursuing the objectives of this program that mm. we were so focused on. But actually, the island choir was was really the fundamental thing that was happening in, in Tuvalu at that stage, and it was getting all these these singers together um, from all the different islands of Tuvalu to reinforce their sense of identity in the face of, a, of, an, unknown, uh, of an unknown future in a way. Um, and so that was my, my opening. And so the rest of the book what I wanted was was to really tell those sorts of stories about the wider world. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting telling those stories because, I mean, travel writing itself has been, you know, criticised in some circles as kind of, you know, a neo-colonial mm. endeavour and, and that sort of thing. And you have a whole section in the book on the post-colonial politics of the region. And I wonder how you grappled with that tension that any writer would really encounter when telling other people's stories in terms of reporting truthfully um, and accurately. And I guess, in a way, you say that this book is inherently biased and partisan. And it's your yes. perspective and your lens through which you're, you're presenting this particular place. But how did you grapple with that kind of tension when writing this book? With difficulty. And, um, and it's true. I mean, this is, a, this is one possible account of a trip through a third of the surface area of the globe, 25,000 uh, islands and atolls. I mean, not all of them inhabited, but an awful lot of them. You could write innumerable accounts of the Pacific from, from different perspectives. So this is, this is just one partisan <laughs> account. Um, um, but I think that that um, I mean it's a it's a difficult question. I, mean, I, th- I think that the, the starting point for me was the, was the sense that um, that a fundamental component of human nature is curiosity mm. and interaction, um, and that if we if we confine ourselves to writing about who we we are, then we don't don't really experience the the rest of the world. So in a way, I was able to to overcome some of the the hesitations about telling other people's stories by sort of telling myself that this is this is you know an inherent part of human nature. Basically, is to is to interact with each other and to reflect each other's stories. And then I think the other component of it was that. 
that I mean, my my first interaction was through um, through the process of aid, and aid is obviously highly mm. politicised in different ways. And the the the, um, the Pacific region is a is a highly um, uh, I mean, it's, it's a region that that still lives the impact of colonialism. I mean, France still has colonial territories in the Pacific. The independent states of the North Pacific, Palau and Micronesia and the Marshall Islands, fall very much under the American umbrella. You know, Australia's just announced that it's you know it's got this Pacific step up, and this is quote unquote our backyard. Mm. And so inherently, I think when you're travelling in the Pacific, whether you're an islander or whether you're from Australia or a country that has an interest, I mean, you're you're dealing in this process of colonialism and post. Colonialism, um, and so part of the book, I think, is it's to try to to navigate uh, some of some of that. It's your subjectivity is really interesting in this because you're both at once kind of an insider, both to the aid industry and mm. some of these places that you've gotten to know a little bit in the time you've spent there. But you're also an outsider; you're a visitor to these places too. And mm. the attitudes of, of some of the, I guess you might say, fellow aid workers or volunteers, and yeah. some people from foreign governments working in these places um, are quite negative. And and you mentioned you know French colonies in the region and New Caledonia in particular and there's a colleague you refer to who says if this place was independent it would be just like the rest of the Pacific in kind of a a negative sense. How pervasive are those attitudes still, you know, given our history and, and, um, you know, and we should have a better acknowledgement of of the the damage that's been wrought by some of these practices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those attitudes are still still quite pervasive in official circles. I don't think that's the case at all uh, in NGOs, Mm. however. And I think that, you know, lots of civil society in Australia uh, and and elsewhere in the Pacific, and those those views are not held. But unfortunately, I think there is a, a discourse uh, within official circles, um, that still regards parts of the Pacific as um, like that. As, as I mean, uh, the term I kept hearing was "basket case." Um, you know, people would talk about Papua New Guinea or the the arc of instability, so called, of Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea. These are, these are you know, the the um, basket cases. I heard someone talk about Papua New Guinea as our Haiti, mm. uh, for example. I mean, these these sorts of um, these sorts of things. And I think that that's um, that's really unfortunate from. Uh, for, for many reasons. I mean, one of which is that what it means is that is, um, people don't see the extraordinary survival and resilience um, and the cultural preservation um, and the way in which Pacific Islanders themselves can point to, for example, a sustainable future mm. um, um, that's, that's all there and that has managed to survive despite the impact of, of centuries of, of um, colonialisation. Yeah, and that's, uh, as I understand, as you describe in the book, in part where the, the title for this book, The Rising Tide, was taken from, um, which refers to the Foreign Minister in, in Australia in 2014 announcing an overhaul of Australia's foreign aid program and saying apparently without irony that this program would lift all boats on a rising economic tide, you know, knowing that climate change is a real and, and, and live concern for many people who live across these islands. And we only need to think about, you know, Peter Dutton's comments when he was picked up on microphone, kind of joking about sea level rises in the Pacific. So mm. we still, you know, have these quite flippant and, and, and negative attitudes mm. out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and the, I mean, the title of the book came from that. I was at this, this conference and um, and I'd been, I'd been interested in, in writing about the Pacific in some way and and when Julie Bishop said that, and this is in the context, you just abolished the aid program mm. and cut aid spending and, and had this new quote-unquote aid, aid par- paradigm. Um, and she said that, and I thought, all right, well, that's it. I mean, that's, that's what the, the book is about. It's about the, the people 
who are the objects, as it were, of this uh, of this uh, this new policy. And, and in fact, I actually cu- I had the, the Dutton quote in there in an earlier draft, and I cut it out, thinking um, that this by the time the, the book appeared, it would all be ancient history. <laughs> anyway, yet here we are. But yet here we are. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And th- there's mm. another really. Um, uh, I, th- I think interesting line you, you quote the former mayor of Bikini Atoll Elson Keller as saying you paraphrase as saying the Pacific is where the nuclear age meets the client, uh, climate change age and I think that's a really visceral kind of sense of where we're at currently in the mm. Pacific with climate change and the damage that's been wrought through nuclear testing around the Marshall Islands for example in the middle mm. part of last century I mean how much is that still impacting people in that particular region? Very significantly um, I mean in terms of the the nuclear testing in in the marshes, and Nelson Keller was the the um, former mayor of Bikini mm. Atoll, um, you know, where so many of the nuclear tests. Well, in fact, in particular, the Castle Bravo test, which I think is. 1958 or 56 I mean, in the late 50s um, and that was the, the biggest of the, of the American nuclear tests and there were about 60 uh, nuclear tests and the equivalent of one Hiroshima bomb per day uh, was detonated over the course of 10 years mm. um, between the mid 40s and the, and the mid to late 50s um, so the legacy of that is extraordinary and obviously for the Bikini Islanders and they, they can't come home and and when he said that it's it's the you know the, the Marshall or the Pacific more generally is where the the nuclear age and the and the climate change age, age meet, in a way he was referring quite specifically to um, a place called the uh, the Runet Dome, uh, which is in the uh, the Enowatuk, um Lagoon, which is in the northern part of the of the Marshall Islands, um, and. A lot of the the nuclear waste, the radioactive waste from previous tests, was was shoveled into this uh, kilometre-wide crater, and then covered uh, with a dome, a bit like the the Chernobyl nuclear reactor was covered in a kind of concrete sarcophagus. And so mm. you've got this in the in the North Pacific. Um, and there are two problems with this. I mean, one is that it's a, a coral atoll, which is porous. Um, and the other is that the the, um, the water levels have risen uh, so that the water now at high tides and when there's you know, strong winds uh, now washes over um, the, the kind of concrete sarcophagus. And so you have this, this problem of, of the leaching of radioactive materials into the into the ocean. Uh, so it's all... It's all coming together in a in a, a, a concerning way, I suppose, in the Marshalls. Yeah, I mean that's a really significant concern, mm. isn't it? I mean, what would happen if that radioactive waste does enter the the Pacific? What's what would be the consequences? Uh, well, I think the the issue is that it gets into the it gets into the food supply, mm. um, and so um, and so I mean, and Olsen Callan was talking about um, uh, returning to uh, to Bikini Atoll, and mm. and obviously the Bikini Islanders have, have now got sort of seventy years of being or sixty years of, of displacement, um, and and there are many of them, particularly the older ones, who want to to go home, and there's also pressure from the government of the Marshall Islands and the U.S. government to go back, say so, you know there's there's no problem with the, the nuclear legacy, it's all okay now, it's all gone away, um, and he was told that um, that he could he could uh, go back and the Bikini, Bikini Islanders should go back, um, and if they went back, that they shouldn't eat the fish, uh, they shouldn't uh, eat the coconuts or anything that grew on the atoll, they shouldn't uh, disturb the soil in any way and they shouldn't let their children play outside. Um, so this is obviously not a place that any sensible person can can return to. And that's the legacy of this 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 um, uh, radioactive poisoning. It just gets into the ecosystem 
uh, and then you don't really have any choices left. Yeah, and, and you speak in the book too. I should remind listeners too, actually, at this juncture, we're speaking with Tom Bamforth, author and aid worker, all about his brand new book, Rising Tide Among the Islands and Atolls of the Pacific Ocean. And on, on that note of, of, of the legacy of nuclear testing, I mean, you speak to uh, Tillman Ruff in this book, mm. the, the public health physician who was one of the co-founders of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and he's been on this show a number of times talking about the, the nuclear ban treaty mm. and so on. But but he says, you know, he, he wouldn't feel comfortable going to live in one of these places because of the, um, you know, the, the health defects that, that, that could occur. But we're not very good at, at remembering the effects of this, are we? As we have, you know, Iran and the US kind of posturing um, Donald Trump and, and King John Un meeting, meeting just mm. over the past 24 hours as well. I mean, this should be something that we all hold up as a really negative and, and disastrous effect of the nuclear age. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, people from the Marshall Islands and around the Pacific more generally have been incredible in, in being the the advocates uh, for a, a, you know the, against nuclear testing, um, they've really you know led the world in in this respect. Um, um, and I think that I mean one of the issues is is and I think this is a point that, that Tillman also makes is that the world is becoming more unstable. I mean mm. we've moved beyond the Cold War era um, when I suppose there was the you know the, the appalling logic of mutually assured destruction, and now we have a, a proliferation of nuclear devices that they're smaller, they're quote you know as it were more agile, they could be deployed in battlefield circumstances, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so I think that's really that's really worrying. I mean combined with the general general instability of um, political leadership. <laughs> <laughs> in a number of countries, um, but it is it is terribly worrying because you know that's it really. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well, and the Pacific has been for a long time the the plaything of, of geopolitical um, you know rivalries and contestations as well. Not just in around World War Two, but of course now as as China seeks to have more influence in the region mm. as well. I mean, how do you see that? playing out and and how i guess does that effect and that power tussle between china and, and australia in some cases impact on the people who live in these places yeah i, I mean i think that um i mean it, it's it's sort of fairly obvious i mean when i when i um uh, first went to the pacific which is 11 years ago and started sort of traveling around a bit i mean there was there was it's noticeable now how much more of a chinese presence there is i mean there's always been uh, I mean, a long-standing presence of, of chinese migrants mm. uh, in pacific um, countries, but I think this is this has particularly become more obvious now. I mean, you see Chinese embassies coming out when they're, they're you know, they look like the U.S. embassies. They're big and prominent. And they're bristling with antennas and all that sort of stuff. I mean, not unlike the Australian ones or the or the American ones um, either. They've sort of joined the club uh, in a sense. Um, so that that sort of sense, you see, you know, China aid cars driving around. So you see a sort of a, a, a um, you know, it's sort of a, a Chinese political and economic um, arrival in the Pacific. Um, I mean, Australia's, you know, taken a, an adversarial position to this. I mean, mm. my view, I suppose, is that it, this is inevitable. Um, I mean, there has to be some kind of accommodation. It's pointless. You know, it's, it's now got the China's now got the highest GDP in the in the world. I mean, it's pointless trying to say, you know, this is ours. Our you know, patch, go away, our patch. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's ironic, um, isn't it? Um, so, um, but yeah, you've got this sort of adversarial um, uh, approach. I guess, which is, I don't really think 
does anyone any favours? And I think you know, Pacific Islands have negotiated the impacts of colonialism and, and post and, and neo-colonialism, post-colonialism very effectively. And so, mm. in a way, I mean, the beneficiaries of this competition are them because they can go to, um, you know, they can go to one government and then go back to another government and say, oh, hey, you know, we we need this or that, or, or they can they can manipulate the situation. Mm. They'd be, you know, sensible to do so. And that's something that that I imagine, you know, many foreign policy analysts will be watching mm. that the Bougainville independence movement potentially mm. with a lot of interest to see how this plays out but you speak to somebody in there who has kind of a negative attitude towards the Chinese but doesn't have a very favourable idea of Australians either which is absolutely fair enough given you know all the mining and so on that's happened yes. there. Yeah that's right well Bougainville's quite interesting because this is a this is an example of, of um, you know there was the, the, the uh, Panguna mine which is the world's biggest uh, mm. copper mine there and it had also very significant gold and, uh, and silver deposits um, there and in fact people children now find deposits of gold in puddles uh, and they go to the shop and they'll buy things with uh, little nuggets of, of gold. I mean, it's an incredibly mineral-rich place. But because of the, the, the environmental devastation of the mine, um, the dispossession of Indigenous peoples, um, um, the fact that none of the, the money from the mine actually went back to, to Bougainville, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, there was a, there was a, a, um, a, a revolt against it. The mine was taken over by the traditional owners. Um, there was a, you know, 10 years of a, of a um, independent, the war of independence, um, and they're not going to have a referendum. Uh, be a, a agreed peace settlement and uh, included a referendum this year, uh, which is going to, well, may take place. Um, um, this year, and so it's interesting in that context. I mean, going to to Bougainville and talking about the the legacy of of Australia in the Pacific, um, of China in the Pacific, what a what a, a, a an independent country would look like, and you get these people who, um, you know, I spoke to the the former military head of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, and and he was you know all for independence. You know, we have to have big, a strong showing in the in the um, um, in the, the independence referendum, and yet there were many others who also who had a kind of a, a slightly softer approach and some of them it was an extraordinary conversation I had with um, one of the traditional owners um, of the, the Panguna mine right in the center of the pit um, who had these these um, uh, who, who expressed his concerns about it he thought we'd, it would be a bit like brexit in a way that you could have a um, nobody really know, knew how how the, the society and the economy and the politics would function um, post-independence. Mm, that's what PNG is warning as well, as mm. I understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting to watch how, how that all, all plays out, of course. Oh, um, yeah. And, I mean, the, the book is very readable and, and funny in mm. parts as well. I don't want to oh, give a sense you. that <laughs> it is entirely um, <laughs> yeah. serious and that there's, you know, really lovely portraits of, mm. of, of communities and people you interact with there and it, and it is mm. very funny in parts. But I was fascinated to know what the nature of your work is when you go on a particular you know, mission for, for an mm. aid program in the Pacific because one of the assignments you go on is to investigate an aid worker who had allegedly acted inappropriately, mm. I think, in Honiara, if I remember correctly. And that, mm. I mean, I didn't think that, that an aid worker would be sent over to investigate that sort of thing. Is that very common? It's not common. It's the only time it's happened to me in... Um 16 years of, of um, aid work, um, I'm relieved to say. Um, I mean, it's quite distressing, obviously, mm. when this happens, and we've, we've heard reports about um, incidents of this in, you know, around the world, actually. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's terribly shocking when that, that um, sort of abuse of, of position and power uh, and influence uh, occurs. I'm happy to say in this circumstance there wasn't actually anything to it, um, but there were you know, concerns that were raised, and um, we had to take them very seriously at the time. Um, 
Um, but that was, yeah, I would say that's probably the the, the, the worst uh, week or so of my <laughs> my yeah. um, uh, professional. Well, I preface that by saying so. you, you touch on on things that are that are funny and lighthearted, having yes. then mentioned a very serious incident. But <laughs> yes, but, exactly. but you do, you know, how you you find yourself there is quite funny. You have to fly over at the last minute and you try and downgrade from business class to economy because you think it's kind of a bad look. This oh, yes. <laughs> this um, NGO employee heading off into business class, but then you lose all your luggage all the the volunteers end up getting um, uh, put into business class um, and then you have this you know quite disastrous time while you're trying to just track this person down yeah. and, and find out what happened yeah yeah it was I mean it was very funny it was it was, uh, it was the the last apparently the last thing available I had to go you know right that day and we heard the allegations we had to take them very seriously and I had to go that day and the only seat available um, uh, unfortunately it was in business class which I should emphasize to your listeners is not <laughs> not how the majority of aid workers um, travel and it's the only time I've done that um, but but when I got there there were all these um, these volunteers from the, the local organization and um, um, and uh, and I thought yeah this, this is impossible you know I, I can't be the, the visuals of this are just so awful mm. so uh, you can't so really explain it yeah exactly <laughs> and you can't explain it and the yeah the, the reaction of the of the airline authorities was was very funny but it did mean that um, yeah my luggage got lost and I um I went uh, around Honiara for the next week in a in a pair of old sort of sawn off shorts, held up with a piece of string, mm. and <laughs> cut the the most uh, uh, fashionable looking downtown. Absolutely, Honiara. yeah. And and mm. I, I mean, you you do mention as we touched on earlier the kind of recalibration of Australia's mm. aid program in the mm. Pacific. How has that changed the nature of our engagement with with the region in in your view over the past kind of five years or so? Um. I mean, I think that the Australian engagement has been. I think there are two things. There's a long-term trend, which is which is just that aid has been cut, um, and it's now um, it's now under zero point two of one percent of GDP. So it's absolutely tiny. It's the, the, the smallest it's ever been. Um, it's amongst the smallest of the of the the OECD nations. Uh, it compares only to countries um, that have endured significant uh, economic. Collapse, uh, recession. Um, uh, so it's, it's. I mean, it's just ridiculous for a for a prosperous country um, for this to have occurred. So there's this long-term trend of of the decline of the aid program. But then there are these these sort of moments where where all of a sudden you know uh, people suddenly rediscover um, uh, regions or the desire to influence through you know through through aid. And this has just happened in the Pacific. I mean, we've just you know Scott Morrison had his his first trip as prime minister to. Uh, to the Solomon Islands mm. and um, and and so they've announced the Pacific Step Up and all this sort of stuff. So it goes in 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 spurts, and I think that that's that's quite problematic in a way because it's not you know it doesn't uh, invest in long term relationships. It doesn't particularly listen to the the ideas and the voices of the people from the the Pacific themselves and what they want. Um, it tends to look at things that you can you can build and put a stamp on um, the great infrastructure projects which are not necessarily what's needed mm. um, it, they also tend to be uh, announceables for the sake of announceable making an announcement um, and and they don't necessarily uh, they're not necessarily new new money so for example the, the Pacific infrastructure um, fund that Morrison set up is not actually new money it's just just reallocated within an existing shrinking aid budget um, so it's all it's all uh, pretty disheartening, really, from that that side of things. Yeah, and we mm. don't have a, a lot of, of journalists in Australia covering the, the mm. Pacific region, Pacific Islands, um, you know, in their specificity, really, at all. And I guess your book is is in part kind of an intervention in that. You're mm. you're telling stories from across the whole region, but 
places such as Nauru and Manus Island have become synonymous with an offshore detention regime, we don't tend to think of them in our collective consciousness mm. as places with people living there, but as internment camps, essentially. I mean, mm. how damaging has that whole process been to Australia's perspective of, of the Pacific and our engagement with our region? Yeah, I think it's hugely damaging. Is that, actually, I mean, one, one area where it's very damaging is in um, uh, the area of press freedom. Um, and so I mean, one thing that's, that's incredibly impressive about many of the Pacific states is their uh, democratic traditions. I mean, there's some exceptions, obviously, Fiji, for example, um, with its culture of coups, but, but also, you know, the liveliness of, of their urban centres and of their, their sort of journalism and political debate and so on. Um, and one of the things that we've seen as the, you know, part of the Australian influence in the detention centres in Nauru and, and Manus is this kind of closing down um, of debate and and discussion and access of journalists and so on. And gradually we've seen um, you know, different regimes begin to impose some of those restrictions on their own civil society. And so there's a there's a, 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 a flow-on effect of the kind of the, the poor decisions that we make. Yeah. Mm. And, I mean, this is your, your second book, I think. Mm. Um, th- this one, the, the previous one was a more, I guess, directed book about the aid program in the Pacific, uh, specifically, if I'm correct about that. No, it was, it was um, I mean, it was more about humanitarian aid. It was uh, general, though. There was sort of a number of different contexts in, in South Asia and Africa and the, the, a bit of the Pacific, too. So this, this evolves from that, but I've taken the, the aid component out mm. um, in a way and just left it with the, the different stories and Encounters and anecdotes and perspectives. I think that uh, that that I encountered in the Pacific. Yeah, and, and so what what's next for you? I mean, do you have another book in you that, that might look at a particular issue in depth? Because it strikes me, having read the book, that there's any number of tangents you could go down to really look at. For example, the the aftermath of nuclear testing or the impact of climate change are just two very prominent examples that are you know impacting on people's lives. There. Do you plan on writing something else about this this region that you spent quite a bit of time in? Yeah. Well, I don't know what it would be. I mean, I, I love writing and I love a travel and and getting sort of uh, expanding my mind and and uh, experiences through through the encounters that uh, that I have. I, mean, I don't I don't honestly I, I don't know. I've just finished this one, but I did I did. It's a bit um, of an unfair question, to be honest. <laughs> Congratulations on the book. Thank you. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> I, don't know. I encountered this, this uh, uh, a Peace Corps volunteer in the Marshall Islands. And um, I was there initially for a, for a week, and then a weekend turned into two weeks. Two weeks turned into a month, and I realised that I could I could go down, I could spend, you know, the the years really just researching the Marshall Islands. I mean, there are all mm. these there are all these different islands. They're incredibly fascinating. They're, they're, and um, and uh, this guy said he had, he had arrived for um, for a few months in 1982. He'd stayed. He's now a grandfather. And I realised that I needed to get the next plane out. You know, otherwise the same thing would happen to me. Um, so maybe that's the next one. That's right. <laughs> See where you plunge. find yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, uh, Tom Bamforth, um, all about your book, The Rising Tide Among the Islands and Atolls of the Pacific Ocean. Thanks for coming into Triple R. And we'll catch you again sometime soon. Fabulous. Thanks, Dylan. It's a pleasure. A pleasure. And you can... Uh, Uh, get Tom's book at bookshops all around town I'm sure now you can buy it online I'm sure it's out through Hardy Grant This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au 